Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBin Fee podcast. All three of us are here today, Nabil, Andrew, and me, Lee. We're talking about working with other people's bioinformatics software, installing and managing, and all of that, which is often the most tedious and painful part of the job. So much so that we often rewrite a whole tool just because we can't install an existing one. Today, we're going to give some advice on how you can avoid all of this and get up and running as painless as possible. So often you'll hear us talking about containers and virtual machine, and and you'll wonder why do we suggest something that seems so incredibly complicated as the easiest way to do your work. Well, if we talk about some of what we've had to go through in the past, you might start to get an idea of why we recommend these approaches. And uh, at, maybe at the end of the episode, we'll talk about some of the best ways that you can manage your software installation today if you're starting a new project. So let's get started with the, the far gone past when we used to deal with compiling source code. I think, Andrew, do you want to lead us off and take us to what it used to be like in the old days? <laughs> Yeah, this is because I'm the old man, is it? Well, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I just found out recently that I'm, that I'm the older man. I had oh, no idea. I yeah, I remember uh, we found out that uh, my birthday is just like a few months before yours. I'm still the young one. Okay, so yeah, back in the older days, like, and now we're only talking about 10 years, it was a pain to do any kind of uh, bioinformatics software installations. In fact, I, I was on a team and we had one person basically spend all their time figuring out how to install all of these random programs that are coming out, you know, like go and edit line 237 of your configuration, then go and compile it and then install 30 different dependencies. But you have to have exact libraries and exact dependencies and would only work, you know, when the moon was, you know, full in the sky and absolute nightmare. We're quite lucky that we're getting away from that. And bioinformaticians, you know, who are coming along now don't know how easy they have it. You know, they might complain about how, how difficult some things are to install, but my God, they've, they've got it so easy compared to what it was like only a few years ago. And that's only improved because of a huge amount of effort to try and make this stuff work a lot better. And so we don't all have to spend hours and hours and hours just getting the very basics working, you know, getting a, a random dependency of a dependency of a dependency to work. I remember a lot of software used to be, you know, you have to compile it and they might just give you, here's the command you need to compile it with no other information. You want no information about what libraries you need or versions or what compiler you even need. It's just like, you know, GCC, blah, 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 and no make files to make your life easier. And of course, you'll probably fail because that's, that's how things go when you go and compile random code uh, that you just got probably emailed to you from someone random or you it's a tar download from a, a paper and then off you go things did improve slightly when people started actually including things like make files as to make compilations a bit a little bit easier if they actually and if you didn't have to go and edit them and of course all of these things requires like a lot of 
expertise uh, just to get some very basic stuff working. If you've ever had to go and do software installations or software development on OSX, you'll know that there's a lot of stuff you need. It doesn't work out of the box. You got to go and like install Xcode and command line tools and stuff like that just to get some basic compilers. But no one tells you you need to go and spend, you know, a couple of hours downloading gigs of data to actually get your absolutely most fundamental basic underlying system set up. And nor does anyone tell you that you need, you know, all these random libraries like to, for GZIP files and things like that. So it's a challenge to get up and running and things have improved greatly. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about. But first, yeah, dependency hell is something that where we've all been. Nabil, you have an example there. I've put uh, a classic, what, what's called a, a uh, diamond dependency, which is possibly the worst kind of dependency hell that you can run into. Now, this is something which you as a user shouldn't have to deal with. You have a tool, you install the tool, that's fine. Then the tool has a sub-module, its own dependency that it relies on. It has maybe a bunch of different ones. Let's say it has one or two of them. And those sub-modules in turn have a shared dependency. One of them requires version one. The dependency requires a dependency of version one. And then the other requires version two. So you have this conflict. And that is a hell of a lot of fun because there's actually no reasonable way to resolve this. Something is running, looking for version one, something's running for version two. The same thing is in, is installed as a common, common library. And you are sitting there at the top going like, looking at this stack trace of this doesn't work at this point, this thing is looking for this thing and it's not there. There's a function that's in version two that the version, you know, that it's just not able to find. And you're like, I have no idea what's going on. I just wanted to align some amino acid sequences and go about my day. What is this nonsense? You can spend an incredible amount of time trying to, to fix this. And it can be to the stage where you have to hack the sub-module to use the other version and sort of like jig it a bit. I've had one where I had to, I won't mention the tool, but it was using an older library that didn't have a reserved word. And then in the newer version, the newest versions, it did have a reserved word. And so it had this conflict. It was trying to do, trying to look for something that was actually pointing to something else. And so I had to go in and actually hack it to make it work. And then I could get my job done. So it's like half a day you're spending trying to get this stuff to work. In some cases, it is unresolvable. There is no way to figure this out. They are too interconnected and they're both conflicting to the point where it's just like, there's nothing you can do. I remember having to go and edit other people's code because, you know, they had assumed that some tools would be available and they'd assumed a particular version. Like, do you, do you remember the old version, uh, 0.1.19 or whatever? And then there's a Oh, that, right. yeah. That one. Yeah. And then you'd have different tools that want different versions of SAM tools, but within the same kind of, you know, script that you're running. And all of them would call SAM tools expecting either the old version or new version, but no way to distinguish between the two. And so I think the only way I could resolve that was actually going in and editing, well, the executables to explicitly call them like, like SAM tools uh, 0.119 or whatever, and then the new version, and then put those hard code those into the scripts like, but you don't want to be doing that, you know, that, as you say, waste half a day, a day easily, or even more sometimes just doing all of this, you know, little engineering work to make stuff work. And it requires like, often you have to dig into 
vast quantities of code and actually really figure out where the actual problem is and you don't want to be doing that yeah so other dependency issues so we've been talking so that one is like a diamond dependency you can have things like a circular dependency which is what exactly what it sounds a needs b and then b needs a and you're just like wait a minute <laughs> that shouldn't have happened or you can even have something more subtle which is just the fact that there's a lot of bloat I think Andrew kind of pointed this out before, like A needs B, which needs C, which needs D, which needs E, which needs F, which needs G. And then your thing is sitting there forever, compiling and compiling and compiling. And at some point it'll break. The more in that chain, the more fragile it is. We run into it with bioinformatics because the code we're usually running is, is academic. So it's not strongly tested and it's not strongly, it's not really designed for produ as production code that people can just pick up and use a lot of the cases. We, but, we call it academic quality for a reason. <laughs> yeah, but, but this is a more of a generic problem with all software engineering. And there is a lot of effort that's been put to try and avoid this stuff over the last decade or so. I remember one of the simplest ones I used to run into was when you were on a, a Linux system and you wanted Java, you had Java open Java SDK installed. That was kind of what you got from, from the package manager, but often some required something specific required the proprietary Java, which is the different type of Java where you had to get from somewhere else. And so your thing would be like, oh, I don't run because Java's not this isn't the correct version of Java. And you're like, but it's Java, but it's the latest one. It's like, you didn't realize that there was a difference between the Sun Java development kit versus the open Java development kit. Nobody told you this. That's not in the documentation. You just have to figure this out somehow. <laughs> and eventually you rack your brain and go, oh, wait, yeah, okay, fine. You find it on some random forum. Some guy posted it two years ago. <laughs> oh yeah, just do this. Lee, do you have any horror dependency stories or horrible running bloatware things xcode oh, is definitely yeah. bloatware two gigs just to get gcc just does my head in I, I as as the resident python hater i will i'm gonna bring it out there uh yeah, bring it on i was reviewer three one time <laughs> and uh, somebody somebody brought to my attention for review some software which you know in the end they made it really great and i'm not gonna name names but they made it really great but they had a dependency on BioPython, but not directly. They had a dependency on a software that required BioPython version one point, maybe it's like 1.7 point something. And then they required some other software. That other software required BioPython 1.6 point something. They obviously were able to install it on their own, on their own computer, and they did it one time probably. But then as a, as a fresh new reviewer on their software, installing it and not understanding Python very well, the libraries, frankly, like how can you possibly install this thing to review it? I feel like they, they don't pay attention to, to those rules and everything that, that semver.org puts forward, which is really underrated. So Lee's talking about semantic versioning for those at home. So with sem semantic versioning, those numbers actually mean something. The first digit is your major version. And if, and if you're versioning within that, nothing should break. The, the next digit, you know, from 1.6 to 1.7, it shouldn't break anything. And then if you yeah. patch something, you change some documentation, you do something very, very, very minor, that's the third digit. That's the patch. And 
and people need to pay attention to that. There, there are some software out there where they just completely rename the executable and and bless them. They've they've made our lives easier. And Kraken comes to mind. They completely change the executable names to have a two after it when they increase the version number, and that helps everybody. Well, I mean, if you're going to bash on on Python, I've got one word for you, mate. Pearl five yes. lib. Pearl five lib. <laughs> Can you explain the joy of Pearl five lib? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'm not going to defend it too much. So Perl 5 lib. And I'll also, you know what? I'm going to put R into that too. So CRAN and CPAN, they both put their libraries into, into you know, whatever the installation directory is for your libraries. Usually it's it's in your home slash lib. And it doesn't matter what the version is. Like you have like an R, BioFilo, or, or BioPerl for Perl. They all go in the same directory. It doesn't matter what the version is. It's just in that directory. And then your Perl or our program points to that thing. The different concurrent versions are not available. It's it's going to get confused as soon as it starts looking in those directories for the for its requirements. Basically, I'm not going to defend keep, it. As you keep installing things, one ver- you know you install a new thing, and so its version of whatever overwrites the previous one, which breaks the old software. I mean, they um, could have they could have fixed it by labeling the the directories after the right versions or something, but but nobody bothered to do it. Nobody could be. What do you say? They can't be arsed to do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A system level pip for Python has exactly the same problem. And I think this is probably where the notion of uh, virtual environments came from and why a lot of people said, you know, you have to do it this way. Very much promoted as the way to get around this problem. And if if you don't know what a virtual environment is, the idea is just to have a localized version of the of the environment for the interpreter language with all of those libraries separated. So you basically have separate installs of Perl or Python or whatever, and they initiate and they run your code so that you can separate all these different scripts that have these different requirements. If you can install them at all. If, if you can install them at all, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I, I was looking through the uh, the Rory issues the other day. I haven't looked through uh, much at all in a long time. And uh, Rory's written Perl, and my God, the poor people trying to install it. So you, you got people, you know, going and they try CPAN, right? Because uh, Rory, the Perl libraries are actually in CPAN. And, you know, it goes and downloads uh, all these different dependencies, like dependencies of dependencies of dependencies and then something fails and then more fails and it's just all of this big you know verbose output where it doesn't actually tell you what's gone wrong i know from bitter experience it probably means you know if you can't install your digest sha1 module it probably means that you don't have a compiler properly installed underneath or possibly you don't have a your, your profile lib set, but usually not. People just can't work this stuff out, you know, from these, uh, you know, very verbose messages of obscure things that are buried deep within the bowels of, of an installation script. So yeah, God help you all. <laughs> yeah, I, I see on your issues page that other people are helping other people. <laughs> I guess you haven't visited for quite some time. Well, I guess the problem is, you know, I've got a job doing other stuff, you know, and uh, you don't get paid to maintain stuff that was written eight years ago. Yeah. Nine years ago. There, there's already been an exciting switch because I saw one issue and we might as well talk about it, which is the M1 Apple architecture. So people not, might not realize that the internals of your central processor in your computer differs from machine to machine such that software might not 
not actually run. And this is every time you come up with a new architecture, there's this teething period where they try and have to patch things and get it cross compatible. And so a lot of people who have bought shiny new Apple laptops with an M1 chip in it can't install basic software like Rory, as I'm seeing in the, one of the issues, because that hasn't been fixed yet. And it is very fundamental. People don't realize that a, an Intel CPU is very different from an ARM chip. They fundamentally they have different instructions and you can't emulate one on top of the other, but that obviously slows things down or whatever. But that's a very, very fundamental thing that is going to break things. And it's going to cause problems for, for a long time to come, I think, particularly for stuff like mathematics. You know, I, I would love to fix the, the M1 Apple stuff for Rory, but I don't have one of those laptops. So if someone wants to buy me one, then off you go. <laughs> I, I'll gladly accept donations of a brand new high-performance laptop. Sounds like a good request. <laughs> it, was, it reminds me actually of a, a bug report someone sent in for a different program called Artemis. And it, this is like a graphical, pro, a graphical visualization program for mathematics. And the guy was complaining that the font size doesn't really work very well. 4K resolution screens. And I'm like, okay, but I can't test it because I don't have, you know, a massive high resolution screen in front of me. This, you know, this is what, five years ago. Um, but you can buy me one if you want. <laughs> it sounds very fair. Would you do it for free after you got the equipment? Ah, maybe. I wouldn't make any promises, you know. On one of mine, I committed maybe a mortal sin for my high quality sent pipeline live set. I actually put in the make file all of the wget steps, all of the everything to install everything all at once into subdirectories and all the dependencies are installed for you. And so it's like a 20 minute installation with a bloated installation directory. I did it because I wanted to have a tight control over the versioning and make sure it works, but it feels like such, I, I don't know what the word is, but it feels like such a mortal sin with Linux and, and Unix ideologies. I've done it. I've done it. There are just points where it's like, you can't keep coming, having people coming back and saying this version is the wrong version or whatever. Like you just go, oh, I'm just going to embed the binaries or just have it pull it from somewhere. Well, that, that's what Torsten does at Proca. He embeds uh, lots of the binaries. Seems to work, except for, uh, was it Table 2 ASN? I note that that's two years out of date, which probably means that it's broken because it's expired. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I think the latest hack was to emulate the date to be to, to not to stay the same the system date so the program would see it as always like not expired so for those of you who don't know this is a very famous program from ncbi which automatically expired after i think a year and you it just would stop working so pipelines would magically stop working for no really good reason it was just this this program didn't like to be old wanted to be forever young but you could check it by changing the system date, which is what people <laughs> had to resort to doing. And, the, and they containerized that hack too. Yeah, they containerized it. So it's <laughs> forever in this time, like <laughs> locked in this time capsule thinking it's 2021 forever. <laughs> I, th I think the latest table to ASN is fixed. Finally, it got to the attention of some good people at NCBI. But I mean, that was, that, I think that program had that issue for years. That was a standard issue apply if anyone, like, yeah, proc is not working, table to ASN, table to ASN, that was it. <laughs> there was one more touristy problem. Getting back to dependency hell, I, I think that one of his programs, maybe maybe it was Proca, had a dependency on Hammer 3 and Hammer 2. And so somehow it was in, embedded 
it and it pointed to the correct executable somehow. Yeah, that often see that's always a thing for pipelines because you you use Hammer Three as a new thing for something specific you're doing, and then you use like an older program that does something else, but then it's using that like. That's kind of where you usually rub up against this sort of problem. There's really not that much you can do about it. So another thing I've noticed creeping in over time is Windows subsystem for Linux, and that causes you know no end of problems because people assume oh it's Linux on Windows, but now stuff doesn't necessarily work. It's emulated on top of Windows, and you know it's, it's translating stuff, and not everything is going to work exactly as it should on Linux. And so Bioinformatics software doesn't necessarily work. I don't use Windows, so I can't even test it. I don't have a Windows machine, uh, nor would I want to waste my time because, you know, it, it's Windows. It's, if we get uh, you a Windows computer, will you, will you take it? Not a chance. Such a tease because everything else, it seems to work. It seems to install and compile. And then it runs into that thing we were talking about where it just looks for some random dependency or shared library or something like that. And just goes, no, not there not available sorry and it just breaks and it's really tempting to do it but honestly if you if you want to do that i would probably suggest you just get like an ssd and just chuck a, a linux distro on that and boot from the from the ssd if you really don't want to dual boot or have a separate system that's running linux and you have to keep windows well so some 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 people are sort of stuck with windows cuz that's the that's what they get for for work and then they're trying to make, trying to explore this space, and then they're not really able to to get started. So I kind of feel for them. Um, on the as as much as I am a Python and R hater, I I do like I do want to give a little bit of applause to Rust, but it, they do it in the best and worst way possible for the dependency hell. What they do is, if there is some kind of diamond dependency or dependency hell. They actually download all of different versions that you need into different subdirectories into the project that you're working on and then compile the project. So it's a bloated source code directory, but it gives you a very reliable executable at the end. Is it a single executable? Like, is it compiled or is it a script? It's self-contained. It's, it doesn't depend on external um, libraries when it's done, when, when the dust is settled. But, you know, of course, depending on whichever project you're on, it, it's one or more executables. Since we've been talking about all the horrible things that has happened, let's talk about how people can avoid all this nonsense and how they should approach managing their software installs. What would be the easiest way? I, I think if I had a small project where I need, where I have some data and I'm playing around with something, you know, I've got some, some BAM files and I'm just playing around with them. I would probably reach for a separate condo environment for that project. And I would fill it with all of the things I need. So whatever Python version I want or Perl version or R version, all the software, so SAM tools or whatever from of Torstiverse, whatever I need, build that into that single Conda environment, use the Python or use the Perl or R or whatever in that Conda environment and uh, keep that as a single separate virtual environment where for all my installation and do that for every single project. I keep separate environments for each project, unless it's something that's a little more verbose and bloated. I might keep that as a its own installed environment that I sort of jump to just for running a specific tool, a very complicated tool. But that's how I found you can avoid a lot. Now, there are reasons for this. The reason is you don't want to dirty your system level environment. You, the only thing that should be in your base, even in your base conda, 
So when you install Conda, you get you get a free environment base. You generally I'd advise you don't install anything in base other than Mamba, I suppose. And maybe you want to upgrade your pip, maybe you want to upgrade your Python, like whatever. But I wouldn't install like actual software in your base environment. I'd always create a separate environment for my project and just fill that with all the nonsense. If I muck it up, I can just trash it and, and make another one and uh, rebuild it easily. What I also would recommend people don't do is inside a Conda environment, make another environment like a Python environment or something like that and try to manage it that way because you just wind up getting confused that there's an environment inside your environment which is inside your environment and you don't know which point you need to initialize to run whatever you're trying to run so yeah just keep it flat one condo and for your project how would you approach it lee what would you add to that i i don't know if i'm if i'm alone in this i kind of even I, I took what you said even a step further that you don't want to dirty your base environment. I have it so that Conda doesn't even load unless I ask for it. So tell me what you think about this. I have alongside like my dot profile dot bash RC, I have a different script dot bash Conda. And I don't even boot up the computer with Conda. If I want to have Conda, then I'll have to run source on bash Conda to even load it up. And then I'll have to load my environments. So that way my base environment is squeaky clean before I start off on the, on things. I have lent to that. So yeah, I'd agree with it. it because you do accidentally start installing on base. So it's good to just be totally hands-off and explicitly yeah, in, invoke it. I'd agree. Yeah, that's a good way to do it if you find you're dirtying your base a lot. And, and after I do that, I do have my like, it's like really stripped down, just like a little bit of an upgraded Python. Conda's in there and, and Mamba's in there. And then it lets me, I can start creating new virtual M's or whatever, but I, I try to keep each one minimal too. What do you think, Andrew? So what's the difference between Conda and Mamba? So Mamba is like a, is a in-place replacement for Conda and it handles a lot of functions like installing and things like that. And the main benefit of it is it avoids you looking at solving environment for 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, that's yeah. kind of worse over time, hasn't it? Yeah. So, so Mamba is a like-for-like -like sort of package. So you, you create your virtual env, uh, you create your Conda environment, you install Mamba, Conda install Mamba or whatever. And then you can start doing Mamba install SAM tools and it'll do it lightning fast. The same way, it's the same, exact same uh, parameters as you would for Conda. So Conda install, Conda create, but you can just use uh, Mamba instead and that will do it much, much, much faster. I don't know what the black magic is internally, but I've seen it take something that in Conda took me 15 minutes. It did it in like one. <laughs> <laughs> did you sell your soul for that? <laughs> I. I've been I've been told that that Mamba sometimes doesn't work because it takes shortcuts, but I don't know what that means. Has it ever not worked for you? It's never not worked for me, but then I think because I've started making my environments specific for each project, they're fairly simple and it's really half a dozen tools and they don't, it's unlikely that they're going to collide. So I think I might be making it easier. I haven't really tried to use Mamba in a case like a, sing like a single environment and really just installed everything, it might wind up colliding or something like that. So is Conda Mamba what do you use for dependency management or is it, uh, do you use pip or homebrew or whatever? I mean, homebrew is a Mac thing anyway. Well, there's Linux brew, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I never got on that bandwagon. There was Perl brew actually at one point, I remember. Oh, that's still, there. that's still here. Oh, is if it? You want... Yeah, because it's not virtual. It's a 
way to install Perl locally for yourself so you can have the latest thing for yourself and have the latest libraries and stuff. Yeah, it's, if you're ever using Rory and you need to fix your Perl environment, then it's a good way to get it started. I don't know. I use Conda <laughs> for everything these days. So if it's not in Conda, then it doesn't exist. Pretty much. We've had a plenty of guests on the show who are very keen to, to get everything onto Conda. So I think most things are, are sort of up there. And it's not that difficult to get your own code into Conda, by the way. Maybe we can do an episode sometime that talks about how you actually do that sort of packaging. Yeah, I've done it a few times. It, it is quite straightforward. Once you do it once, like there is a bit of kind of fluff around it. But once you do it once, then it is actually very straightforward to do it. You can rinse and repeat over and over and over again. And then updating stuff is basically automatic, you know? Okay. My, my method so far is to make some software that everyone likes and then somebody does it for me. The easy way. Yes. Actually, one of the hardest ones I ever came across is apt-get, you know, the apt system for Ubuntu and, and Debian. And they have a very, very high bar for quality and a lot of review. And if you want to become a developer of, of modules for, for apt or whatever they call it, like you need to be mentored, you know, for six months or a year, this kind of thing. It's like really, really difficult. But once you get stuff in, then it's really, you know, it stays there. It lives. It's not going to die tomorrow. It's quite stable. Interesting. So like all the things that I apt get, like SAM tools or whatever, like people have been trained to put that in there. Yeah. Like, well, they have a core team who, who do that kind of stuff. Debian Med, I think they're called. And they do a lot of work voluntarily just to get that stuff in and fair play to them. It does work and, you know, you can do apt get Rory and it should install and it should install in five years time with all the right dependencies. Have you used like Docker or Singularity, you know, for, for managing your Python? Not for uh, Python. I've never had, I've never executed Python scripts using Docker or Singularity. That's an interesting one. Usually they're much more complicated things I'll try to run. One of the one in saying Docker and Singularity, we're talking about containers. And these are different to virtual M's because they're sort of immutable boxes that have a thing pre-built inside it. And you're just dealing with this black box that has all of this pre-configured uh, software, whatever inside of it. And it's, it's more or less detached from, from the operating system. One thing I find really useful with, with, with Docker is standing up things like databases. Like if you need Postgres or something like that, or you need a web server or something, Docker is way easy just to say, you know, just to stand that up rather than having to install it yourself onto an OS. And it's obviously once you've got the configuration for Docker to do that, then you can port it to wherever you like. That's one one really useful thing about Docker. Generally more complicated software I'll use uh, Singularity. That's just so that because Singularity plays better with HPC and I'm jumping between the two. So that's that's my preference. But Docker sometimes is really easy. Like Docker Rory is really easy just to get that up and run for you, uh, as an example. Yeah, so maybe that means that if you did run a container and it's running some complicated pipeline, like maybe they have their own version of Python or something that you did run on there, just kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes, definitely. They would probably be relying on it. But just to run Python, I don't think I've run it to <laughs> Docker before. Well, you can get kind of nice base systems, you know, with particular versions of Python or particular versions of Debian installed. And from there, you know, it gives you a nice solid place to work from. Or even what I've done before is create Docker containers with just Conda, you know, a few different scripts, which will just basically go into the container, do Conda install, blah. And so you've got one tool in one container. I know you can get, some people have done this already you know 
but it's quite a nice way of keeping stuff separated. But then of course, if you have the added complication of how do you actually work with multiple different containers? And I think that's uh, something we covered in the uh, other episode we had the other day, the workflow description languages. Yeah. And we've contain- also, if you, if you tune it back in with the staff B episodes as well, we talked a lot about containers and maybe merging them, having multiple tools. So it's sort of like, rather than a IQ tree a container, you might have a phylogenetics container that has IQ tree and something else and a bunch of other stuff in there one go it depends how much you want to keep separated the nice thing is is like the docker files are something you can just get and configure to your liking and build there's a lot of templates for people to use so yeah you can have a good particularly for things like r it's great to get r templates and then tell it install all these extra packages for me and then i have an r environment that has everything ready to go and that that that's really really nice wait are you saying that you run r from a container then i run r from a container yeah Always ah. now. No, I, I did use Conda the other day. I won't say always, but I, I have, it's very easy to get tidy. Like I think it's Rocker to get tidyverse, the dev tools and whatever packages you want in a Docker file. And then you just build a container and then you just stand that up and you just go, you know, it's like, hooray. <laughs> <laughs> it's even better when you hook that up to something like our studio or Jupyter notebooks or something so that it runs it, it produces that like hub session for you. So you go to it on the browser. You don't even see the Docker part. You stood the whole thing up in the container and you just deal with it from, from a GUI from the outside and you're doing all your interactive scripting from that. It's super, super nice. I mean, that's what Docker is for. Docker is for standing up microservices like that. That's the point of it. And it's really good <laughs> for, for, for that reason. Incredible. So I guess we didn't put a note in the, the notes for this, but it, I mean, I, I feel like the next natural step is do you use these containers or virtual lems in a team environment? Does that help you out or is that nonsense? We have a shared directory of singularity containers that we pass around, much like in the old days, you might have a shared directory of binary files that someone's carefully handcrafted to work in your environment. We pass containers around, which just to make life a bit easier. Are they in brand envelopes under a counter? <laughs> Unmarked. Uh, sort of, sort of. Sorry, I'm not sure if you get that reference. Uh, In Ireland, a common form of bribery was to put money into a brand envelope and, you know, put it under the table. Very nice. That's how you're going to get your Mac computer, your M1. (laughs) I make no promises. (laughs) So that's all the time we have for today. I should point out that this episode was actually inspired by a tweet I saw from Aaron Vincent, who is at Dark Cosmologist on Twitter. And he was talking about some of the advice he's gotten for installing Python. And it's this long list that says definitely use Anaconda, definitely don't use Anaconda, definitely use Homebrew, definitely don't use Homebrew, definitely use pip to install packages, definitely don't use pip to install packages. And that inspired us because it reminded us that actually, if you're just getting started, it's incredibly complicated to figure out what the real advice is. So that's what we've been talking about today. What are some of the best approaches for managing your software packages on your uh, local machine so that you can get through all of the hellish stuff we used to and get, get down to getting your work done. And hopefully we've got some tips in there that have been, that been helpful for everyone out there. So it's been me, Nabil, Lee, and Andrew with you today on the MicroBinfi podcast, and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. 
And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.